Who's winning? Weekly earnings growth was up just over 3%. Who's not? There's been two years where more funds have liquidated than have launched. What's the future of money management? A lot of hedge funds are really using ETFs to lower their costs. Several managers that we talk to have different things that are alarming them. This is Bloomberg Finance, your source for hedge fund trends, investing strategy, and asset management with John Tucker and Peggy Collins on Bloomberg Radio. Hello again, everybody. I'm John Tucker, along with Peggy Collins. Every week at this time, we get together for a look into hedge funds and asset management. And Peggy, he's Bach. No, not the Terminator. Steve Cohen. Uh, Steve Cohen's hedge fund seeking another billion dollars. Billion with a B, John. Yes. And here to tell us more about this hedge fund manager and his new plans is Hema Parmar, who broke the news this week that Steve Cohen's hedge fund is seeking another $1 billion. Hema, Tell us, why is this surprising in some ways? Mm-hmm. So he had raised $5 billion last year when he made his big comeback, um, opening up 72 to outside capital, and then had closed. And now the news is that, yes, he's raising another billion dollars, opening up to new investors. And what's interesting is that this is a time when it's typically quite difficult for a lot of fund managers to raise money. We've seen outflows of like $38 billion last year from the industry. Uh, this is, We've seen the fewest number of hedge fund launches in about 20 years last year. So generally, uh, a pretty difficult time to be seeking allocations. Now, Steve Cohen's a bit different. Um, he had this track record of, of producing 30% returns for a number of years during his SAC capital days. He was out of the industry um, as he had was banned from trading for a couple of years, given his history, and then had made his big comeback. So he said last year that, you know, it really wasn't that difficult for him to raise the $5 billion, that it just took, you know, 10 to 12 meetings, um, and, and it wasn't so hard for him to garner that money. I mean, he may think that it won't be too difficult this year either. Okay, we're calling this a big comeback for Steve Cohen. Remind everybody what his uh, track record is long term. Uh, so his returns during his time at SAC Capital were annualized at about 30%. Um, keep in mind that his SAC Capital uh, years ago had pled guilty to securities fraud and had paid a $1.8 billion fine. Now, Cohen himself wasn't charged with any one wrongdoing, but he did face a two-year ban from a manager other people's money. So when he made his, you know, big comeback, he raised a lot of money, but returns is really what people care about. And last year, he made less than 1% for investors. So not not too great, certainly not the blockbuster numbers. He came back with a new firm, 0.72, right? Right. So SEC Capital existed. That turned into a family office when they returned right. to outside capital. That became 0.72. And then when he made his comeback, meaning he opened up to other people's money again around the beginning of last year. If they kept the name point seventy two, but now it manages his wealth and other people's money too. Do we know about how much he's got in total there now? Mm-hmm. So it's about I think thirteen billion. Five is um, other people's capital. The rest is about his own. It could be a bit more than that. Uh, certainly, he's he's uh, got a lot of personal wealth himself. So. I, I know we don't know exactly who's giving him all this money, mm-hmm. but can we speculate where it's where it's coming from? Um, I mean, it, it's typically family offices, pensions, foundations. Um, fund of funds, um, any of these sort of bigger institutional investors that give money to hedge funds. It could be from, you know, North America. It could be from abroad. He did say that he took um, at least one meeting abroad when he was fundraising. So uh, there are a number of, of avenues that he could have gotten. Has he, uh, has he talked to us? Uh, no, he, did. he declined to comment. 
<laughs> we, that, that is one of the most um, commonly used lines in, um, in the investing team <laughs> stories about hedge funds, the hedge fund declined to comment. Exactly. Emma, you mentioned that the returns last year for Point72 in its first year back managing money for other people was about 1%, which doesn't sound that great. Mm-hmm. What, what about so far this year? So, yes, less than about a percent in returns for his investors last year, which beat the S&P and the average hedge fund. Um, still not too great, though, for investors. And then if we look at so far this year, he's up about 5% in the first quarter, but the S&P was up 13% in that time, and the average hedge fund about 3%. So better than last year, still not beating you know the stock market broadly, but did do a bit better than the average fund to his peers. Okay, on a, a comparison basis, how are other hedge fund managers doing it when it comes to raising capital for their funds? Um, not too well. So if we look at the number of startups that we saw last year, the the big blockbuster fund launches, we saw uh, Michael Galband raise $8 billion for his exodus point last year. We saw Steve Cohen raise five. Uh, we saw Dan Sundheim raise about four last year. So billion-dollar funds. If we look at the funds that, that are launching this year, I think the average or the, the bigger number that we've heard is about $1.5 billion. Um, in terms of fund launch size, which comparatively is a lot smaller, which if you're launching a fund, though, is still not a bad size to be launching a fund, but I think speaks to the general sentiment of money flowing a little bit outside of the hedge fund space, maybe moving to private equity or VC, um, and a little some concern over their ability to, to produce returns, also um, concern over fees. So a lot of the new fund launches are being a lot more flexible on, on the fee side if they're seeking to raise money. Um, that said, if you have, people are expecting a downturn, Hedge funds might be the place where they would want to invest, but who knows? Hema, I have a question for you. Could you walk us through this process? So you said Steve Cohen came out, came back last year, raised about five billion dollars, then closed to outside investors. Now it looks like he's saying, "Hey, we want more people in the fund." Mm-hmm. How does that work? The open close mm. process. Why? So a fund may open to new investors, say, "Okay, we're going to take your money as of now, and we'll take money up until this date, and they'll, they'll close it." Sometimes it's a soft close where they they say they'll close it and they kind of still take a bit more money. But but if it's a hard close, all right, we're done. We're gonna we're gonna start trading the money we have. We have. We're gonna put it to work, and then you're gonna have to wait for us down the road, and then we'll open up to new money again later. It helps them to kind of allocate the capital they have. Um, they have to spend on things like staffing and, and the building and the infrastructure and the trading fees and then actually investing and then producing those returns. Thanks for your great scoop this week on Steve Cohen's hedge fund opening up to another potential $1 billion. Thank you. That's Hema Parmar, Bloomberg News investing reporter in New York. And Peggy, every year, Michael Milken, once of junk bond infamy, has presided in Hollywood splendor. For more than two decades, this is going on for the annual Milken Institute Global Conference. And, of course, we never get invited. We weren't invited, but John Gittleson, our Bloomberg News reporter, was invited and on the ground for the conference reporting there this week. John, can you tell us what was the atmosphere like this year? Um, Well, it was interesting because this is a gathering of some of the richest people in the world, and they seemed very concerned about the rise of populism, in particular in the U.S., the potential for people like, say, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, 
AOC to be driving policy, which they consider very threatening. Hey, John, despite being the junk bond king of infamy, uh, Michael Milken has a great deal of credibility, doesn't he? Well, he still has this huge group of people who he sort of nurtured, mentored, who have founded companies like Apollo Group, one of the largest private equity firms, Leonard Green, Canyon, Aries, Oak Tree, you name it. There are so many people that have been associated with him over the years. Basically, the junk bonds and other financial instruments that he created enabled the leverage buyout boom of the 80s that continues today in private equity. John, you talked about private equity. What is the makeup of some of the people that are there? Do they tend to be people who are in the private markets, in the public markets? What's your feedback on that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, they attract pension managers. They attract people from some of the biggest fund managers. There was the CEO of PIMCO was there, for example, people from Guggenheim, people from Principal Investment Group, from uh, PGIM. Uh, but it's really a private equity and private markets conference. And there's a feeling that uh, that's where the action is from both asset managers and from, you know, investors who are concerned that it's the only place to really make alpha. It's the only place to beat keeping your money in stocks and bonds. Is uh, this conference just for the elite? It's for invitees <laughs> or people who can pay $15,000 and as much as $50,000 for a ticket. I think you just said yes. <laughs> well, that's a way of saying yes. I mean, they did invite uh, people like uh, speakers who represent former prisoners, people who are doing work on behalf of Education for All. Their, their theme of this year was driving shared prosperity. Um, however, it's definitely a convention for the elite. I mean, it's nicknamed the Davos of the West. It's supposed to be big thinkers, and there were big thinkers there. But really, the action is in the hotel suites and up in the private mansions of Beverly Hills and Holmby Hills and Brentwood and Pacific Palisades and Bel Air, where they convene after hours or for private meetings. And a lot of people see it as a great opportunity to make deals, uh, treat clients to, you know, great food, auction art, do all kinds of things like that. Um, and Mike Milken his big proposal was need to pour a lot of money into education to create opportunity for the people that are left out. He talked a lot about providing free tuition, based, you know, basically needs blind admissions for a lot of universities. One of the big sort of overarching topics here, and part of it is because it's in L.A., uh, is the college admissions scandal. Were any politicians there? Um, yeah, uh, there were several politicians. I mean, um, Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, spoke to an invite-only event. Jared Kushner spoke at another invite-only event. Uh, Ivanka Trump appeared there. Um, and there were a couple of Democrats, too, uh, who are running for president, John Hickenlooper and Seth Moulton. Uh, but, you know, they didn't have as many A-list Democrats as they did 
members of the Trump administration. John, you also wrote a story this week about the Milken event that talked less about stocks and bonds and more about puppies and yoga. What was going on with the puppies at Milken? Yeah, they had this um, wellness area where they had puppies for people to snuggle up with so they could relax. They had these sound therapy. They had aromatherapy. They had massages going on. Um, it was kind of, you know, your your classic California alternative healing, de-stressing type area. They like to include alternative healing. They talk about education is a big theme of Mike Milkins. And he's also a big proponent and expert on medical advances. He is a prostate cancer survivor. So uh, a lot of his focus has been on new developments in medical treatments, including some of the alternative type stuff. He's a big fan of food and food production and how that fits into, you know, environmental issues. So he's a very kind of renaissance guy in all his interests, and it, it does bring together a lot of big thinkers on all different topics. AI, there was a guy who spoke about LSD microdosing, uh, not just investments. And, and a lot of the investors that I talked to there said one of the things they enjoy is going to some of the sessions where people are talking about new ideas rather than just talking about yield spreads and all the kind of stuff they're dealing with every day in their office. Be very careful how you answer this final question, but uh, would you choose the sound bath in the wellness garden or the puppy pen? <laughs> John? I'm thinking. I mean... Oh, you already failed. You already failed the test. You said be careful. So... John, talk about I mean, where would you go? I don't oh, have a gong. Pen, of course. <laughs> I don't have that kind of a gong or those bells at home. Puppies no. are, you know, a dime a dozen. So. <laughs> oh, 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 that's going to get calls. Hey, bail them out. Yeah, John, thank you so much for your great reporting from the Milken Institute Global Conference this week in Beverly Hills. Thank you. That's John Kittleson, Bloomberg News reporter in L.A. Maybe I should uh, whisper this segment, Peggy, in case the IRS is listening. Like uh, (laughs) flipping a light switch, Vanguard has figured out a way to shut off taxes in its mutual funds. Huh? How did they do it, John? Here to tell us more is Annie Massa. She's joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 newsroom in Washington. And Annie, tell us a little bit about how Vanguard actually was able to shut off taxes, as John said, in some of its mutual funds. Sure. So Vanguard patented back in the early 2000s this system to defer taxes in its mutual funds by using ETFs. And the way that it works is the ETFs are attached as a share class of its mutual funds. And it's able to use some of those tax efficiencies that are specific to ETFs um, in the mutual funds as well. And as you mentioned, this is a strategy that they got a patent on, um, so only Vanguard can can really do it. I I like the way you phrase that, tax efficiency. Maybe some other people would call it something else. Yes, well, the, the way that ETFs work, um, you know, Zach Miter, who wrote this story with me, um, has has done um, another story, too, pointing out um, how these so-called heartbeat trades um, help uh, ETFs avoid capital gains taxes. And it's kind of a uh, has to do with a quirk in the tax code, but 
ETFs are able to get, um, you know, friendly banks and third parties to, um, you know, pump in uh, capital into the fund and then with and then quickly withdraw um, securities. And the, the way the system works helps these ETFs avoid capital gains taxes as a result. Annie, did you call it a heartbeat trade? Did I hear you correctly there? That's right. That's that's what's known as a heartbeat trade because the way that it the way that it looks, um, you know, when that money is pumped in and then you have the quick withdrawal, uh, kind of, you know, looks like a big spike and then withdrawal. So these are called heartbeat trades. And you write in your story, Annie, that by 2011, Vanguard had flipped the switch, as you write, in 14 stock funds, um, and that these funds have booked $191 billion in gains while reporting zero to the IRS. Yes, that's pretty sizable. And we also reported that internally, Vanguard has wondered, hey, is this something that the IRS would be interested in? It hasn't been you know, it hasn't been a main um, way that they that they something that they publicize very greatly. So, um, you know, their their conclusion is that everything is you know completely compliant with the law, but that they have wondered internally uh, if the IRS would want to take a look at that. And I'm sure they're just thrilled that you're talking about it now. <laughs> How did you guys find out about this? So it all came as, um, you know, a result of looking back at these patents. And it's kind of timely because the patents that Vanguard got on this strategy will expire around 2023. So one thing that we're looking to see is if anybody else in the industry, any other mutual fund managers, would perhaps want to copy that method once, um, you know, once the patents expire. And Annie, you mentioned the patents. So the Vanguard's patents, it, it, from your reporting, are valid until 2023. So does that mean nobody else can do this until then, but then the, the game is open to everybody? Yes. Well, not entirely. One other thing to mention is that they have explored uh, licensing the patents. And um, USAA actually, actually did license the patents, but no funds have been released on, on, you know, as a result of that. So you haven't, we haven't seen any copycats yet. So it's still an open question once these patents expire, whether others would want to come in and and do the same thing with with their mutual funds um, and their ETFs. Are we talking here about completely avoiding taxes or just deferring them? That's that's right. So it's really a tax uh, deferral for these funds. And the ETFs, by being a share class of the mutual funds, are able to, um, you know, extend that benefit that they have to mutual funds as well. Annie, did you get reaction to your story from readers? What 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 did people think? Did they think, "Ooh, I got to get into some of these ETFs"? Um, yeah, no one in business development, <laughs> any of these companies, called me up. But I think I think it was shared. It's, you know, it's worth noting that some in the industry say, "Hey, you know." Uh, this is just this is standard practice, um, but you know it's, it's worth it's worth highlighting that this is um, a quirk and it's, and for now it's specific to Vanguard um, because because they decided to go out and and get those patents on this setup. Annie, thank you so much for your terrific reporting this week. Check out her story on Bloomberg.com and the Terminal on how Vanguard patented a way to avoid taxes on mutual funds. Thanks for joining us, Annie. Thanks, guys.
That's Annie Massa, Bloomberg News reporter in our D.C. Bureau. Um, In global yields, the chase for yields is fixed income, a place for investors. Consider this, Peggy. At least some sovereign bonds are negative yielding. You have to give them your money. Negative yielding sounds very bad. I usually like positive, positive, John. Here to tell us more about emerging markets, and particularly in the fixed income area, is Teresa Kong. She's a portfolio strategist for Matthews Asia. Teresa, thanks for joining us by phone from San Francisco. Thank you very much, Peggy and John. Teresa, tell us first, what do you do in your role as head of fixed income investments at Matthews Asia? I'm responsible for the overall investment strategy I make day-to-day security selections on the portfolios. And in addition to that, you know, we think much more broadly in terms of how to design products that resonate with our clients over the next decade. So I'm also very involved in product design. And then last but not least, um, we're, I'm very involved in the overall risk management of the products and being the spokesperson for fixed income in general. Now, I had mentioned the the sovereign bonds. I suspect that uh, you don't deal too much with the sovereigns at this point, and some of the the negative yielding sovereign bonds, those are in the established markets. Uh, What are you focusing on? I focus largely on Asia. So the emerging market universe is quite broad, and specifically on sovereign bonds. If you look at the J.P. Morgan MB or the Emerging Market Global Index, about a third of that index is Latin America, um, and then the rest is divided between emerging Europe and Africa, and then finally Asia. So the part that I really focus on currently is Asia, but I really spent the last two decades looking at all of emerging markets. Okay, so what uh, when it comes to yields in this uh, search for yields globally, what, what are we looking at for investors? Well, it's a really good question. You know, many of our clients come to us precisely because of the current negative yielding environment. And where we are finding yield on the sovereign side, you know, are U.S. dollar denominated sovereign bonds of Asia. So if you just take a typical, um, let's say, China. So China's on the headlines quite a lot. But a, a U.S. dollar denominated bond um, of a SOE, so that is a state-owned enterprise of China, which has an implicit guarantee by the Chinese government, is yielding currently anywhere between 4 and a four and a quarter percent. Not too shabby when you think about it. <laughs> That's not too shabby. Okay, now, so you the, go up farther in the spectrum. So if you take, let's say, a higher yielding like a Sri Lankan bond, now we're talking seven, seven and a half, even eight percent. Okay, but how long do I have to tie up my money? Because that brings in uh, another risk, doesn't it? It does. So the quotes that I just provided, you know, reflect anywhere between a five to about a seven-year bond. So not too long, um, less than ten years. Uh, Teresa, you mentioned Sri Lanka, which is dealing with a tragedy that may put pressure on the country. So what is your thinking there in terms of risk? Yeah, that's a great question. Most importantly for us is to really be able to separate the signal from the noise. And in the case of Sri Lanka, the tragedy was certainly unexpected and a huge blow to the economy. However, we think over the long term, it's actually not going to be detrimental. So specifically, um, in terms of the bonds, the bonds have sold off about 3%. The stock market has sold off anywhere between, depending on the security, between 5 and and 9 10%. But we actually think it may be a good time to get in and to find good companies with a good fundamental story. 
because ultimately the long-term story for Sri Lanka is one where there is substantial foreign investment right now. Um, there's a big development in Colombo, and as that comes to fruition over the next five to ten years, it is actually a country that will offer really good opportunities. So we tend to take advantage of the noise to make long-term investment decisions. Now, just to be clear, we're talking about uh, bonds or the, the debt of uh, private companies, right? We actually invest in both. Um, but primarily, we do invest in corporates. And the reason is, you know, within the corporate space, we're able to access over a 1,000 different companies. So that gives you tremendous diversification benefit. Um, in the sovereign world, you know, there's just a many, fewer countries to, to invest in. And so most of our investments do tend to be in corporates, and that's where we can add most value because going with an active manager who can really do the deep credit work to ensure that you don't go into an event of default is really what we specialize in and we think investors can really benefit from. Now, that's got to be tough, examining uh, a 1,000 or more different companies to see whether or not uh, they are sustainable and whether or not they're going to default. How do you, how do you separate the 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 uh, the good from the bad well that's a great question one of the key things about investing in credit is really less about what you hold but making sure that you don't hold the companies that will default so specifically how do we parse through 1000 different companies as you asked well we actually deploy both a quantitative as well as a fundamental process so just as when you walk into, let's say, a gap, the store is trying to maximize probability that anyone who enters in the store will actually buy something, right? Well, we do the same thing through a, a rigorous quantitative screen that enables us to rank order that entire thousand universe. And then we can sort it by industry, by country, to maximize probability that we're going to spend that weeks of time to dig deeper into the credit that we actually have a pretty high probability of investing in that company. Teresa, how are you incorporating the trade talks between the U.S. and China and how they are developing or changing, in some cases minute by minute, into how you approach fixed income in Asia? Yes, this is definitely a very important topic I think it's important to put the trade talks into the perspective of the overall negotiations. So the U.S. and China are really negotiating on several fronts. Number one is trade. Second is foreign direct investment, i.e., how do we create a level playing field so that it's just as easy for American companies to enter into China as it is for Chinese companies to come out and invest in the United States. And then the third is largely what I'll call, put in category of intellectual property rights and protection. I think it's important to keep in mind that we're moving from a multilateral world to, to much more of a bilateral world. So I do believe that these negotiations will actually take place over a course of several years. And what we're really focused on right now is to just have one deal that focuses on trade. So that deal may actually cover a relatively narrow aspect of trade, but even with some certainty, I do think that that will improve investor sentiment. Now, it's important to keep in mind that 2018 was very much colored by an escalation of this trade war, whereas in 2019, we've already seen a de-escalation, i.e. we're not slapping on any additional tariffs. 
And that in and of itself, I think, has improved investor sentiment already in the first half of this year. Okay. To stick with China and uh, fixed income investments in China, has the Chinese bond market uh, come of age? <laughs> yes, it certainly has. Um, well, most importantly, um, the, the Bloomberg Barclays Global Bond Index has started to include China in its, in its really flagship index starting in April. And what that means is is that no longer can global investors afford to just stand on the sidelines and say, oh, maybe I don't understand China. It's too complicated. I don't want to get in. Being part of the global act actually means that for many institutional investors, having a neutral weight would mean actually holding about 6% of the index once China has been fully included in November of next year. So these managers will actually have to be able to explain to their clients what, why they hold China at all and whether they want to overweight or underweight just to fulfill their fiduciary duties. So the implication is that most investment managers get to know China better. And I, I think overall it really demystifies China. You know, one of the things that we always joke about in our firm is that every year there's always some major article about whether or not China's going to have hard landing. And that's been going on now for almost two decades. Um, so there's a lot of misunderstanding and a tendency to simplify the story. So we think overall this is actually transformational to China. Teresa, how did you get into investing in the first place? Oh, that's a great question. So I started in investing back in the mid-90s. And this was a really fascinating time because it was really the birth of the emerging markets. So back then, if you might recall, um, U.S. banks were inundated with distressed loans. And in order for the banks to actually, you know, come out of this crisis, they called up the Secretary of Finance, Brady, and they came up with the Brady Plan. And the Brady Plan was, in fact, um, really important to development of the bond market because it enabled the U.S. Treasury to, to back the principle of these, of these loans and actually turn them into emerging market bonds. And I was, you know, fortunate enough to be um, around when these Brady bonds were actually being exchanged into plain vanilla euro bonds. And my interest, you know, in all of this really stemmed from the fact that I grew up in, in Asia um, and in North America, but I was actually an exchange student in Germany when the wall came down in 89. And so I was always fascinated with the development and the fundamental questions of how a country can actually lift its population out of poverty. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights on emerging markets and your role at Matthews Asia. Thank you. That's Teresa Kong, Head of Fixed Income and Portfolio Manager at Matthews Asia. And we'd love a guest who mentions a Bloomberg Fixed Income Index, Peggy. That is this week's edition of Bloomberg Finance. Tune in again next week at the same time when we get together for our look into hedge funds and asset management. For Peggy Collins, I'm John Tucker, and this is Bloomberg.